We're working our way through 2 Peter Sunday mornings. Living on earth with a divine nature. This is part three. The title is a question. Answer this just in your mind. See what you say. Is it easy or is it hard to live the Christian life? Is it easy or is it hard to live the Christian life? Did you get an answer? Did you? Well, which is it? Sure, okay. Is it easy or is it hard to live the Christian life? And the answer is yes. 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. This links it up with what we studied before. Obviously, that's the link. For this very reason, and you say, well, what reason? And it's what he was just talking about. We'll look at that. But here's the sentence. Make every effort. Make every effort. So this must be hard. Make every effort is like someone in a gym, you know, the, the last 10 reps with weights. Make every effort. To supplement your faith. That seems strange because you're justified by faith, not by works. So, like, surely we don't have to add to what God has done. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Let's pray. We read in Ephesians where the Apostle prayed that the eyes, the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. That's what we need. Without the eyes of our heart being enlightened, we will be like blind people not seeing what we're supposed to see. And so, Holy Spirit, come and open the eyes of our hearts and minds to treasure divine truth, to savor it, to see the sweetness in it. The day will come when we will stand before you and the only thing about us that will be lasting is what we treasured from your word. And so teach us to allow your truth to dislocate all that is unworthy and scattered and earthbound. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
Peter has just made some bold claims. So the text tonight, this morning, starts with, for this very reason. And the reason is, he's made some pretty bold claims about the uh, yeast-like power of the promises of God once they get into our system. In the verse right before verse 5, verse 4, he just said, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, that's the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, that's one, partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And the reason they can accomplish that in my life is God said he has put his own power and life into those promises. If you backed it up one more verse, so that was four. If you went to three, his, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So, our text in verse 5 picks this up and is referring back to those things. He's given us his promises. He's put his power in his promises. Through those promises, verse 3, we become, four, partakers of a new nature. Verse 4, we escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. That's why it's strange. I mean... In today's text, 5, 6, and 7, Peter says something that on the surface seems to contradict what he's been saying in the first four verses. I mean, if the first four verses stress the the incredible greatness of God's promises and their power in our lives to infuse a new nature and escape the corruption that is in the world through lust, if through through inward desires and lusts. Then verse 5 seems out of place. For this very reason, make every effort. And you want to say, well, which is it? Has God provided everything? His promises to give a new nature and escape the corruption that is in the world through evil desires and our fallen natures? Has he done it all? Has he put his power there? Or do we have to do everything? Make every effort. Is it easy or is it hard to live the Christian life? There are all sorts of Christians who stress the greatness of what God has done and is doing in our lives through the power of Christ. We sing about it all the time in our worship courses, and we should. You can't do anything in your own strength. Don't put yourself under bondage to regulations and rules. Just rest in the Lord. Let him do the work. Don't worry about being so religious. Just love Jesus. Rest in Jesus. And then there are others who make the Christian life little more than just human resolve and willpower. It's not that different from just like New Year's resolutions. You make yourself a Christian by living like a Christian. Peter won't take any of those positions. 
He doesn't take the just rest in Jesus, and he doesn't take the resolve, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. The important words in verse 5 are those words, for this very reason, and they link up with what he has just been saying in verses 3 and 4. You have to start with what God has done for us in Christ. He's initiated everything. He started everything. He came, and he supplied both forgiveness and power for holy living. So, so the Christian faith starts with God's action, not my action, while we were still sinners, the Bible says. Christ died for us. But today's text, while recognizing that, Peter recognizes that while the gospel starts with what God has supplied and accomplished, it never stops with what God has done. For this very reason, verse 5. So, because of what God has provided on the inside, we are to make every effort. This is not legalism. God's, God's work enables my willing. I have a freed will. Because of God's grace in my heart. So God's work enables my willing, but it never bypasses it. So here we all sit, a bunch of us here, Fellowship Hall. How do you know, how do you know you have saving faith? Is that an unfair question? How do you know you have saving faith? Can you just sort of self-pronounce it? The Bible talks about assuring our hearts in his presence. It talks about examining ourselves to see if we're in the faith. How do you do that? The Bible talks about many people who, who, who mouth the words about Jesus being Lord. They even do works in his names and name, and it says one day they'll stand before Jesus, and he's going to say, I didn't, sorry. I, I, you might think you knew me, But I didn't know you. So surely this is a worthwhile question. How do I know? How do I know I actually have saving faith? That's, it seems to me that's what Peter is dealing with in this text. Because he says there, there is a way to know. You can be sure there is evidence of saving faith in the heart. And that leads us to, get ready, point number one. Genuine faith always produces a passion for spiritual pursuits. I tried to make that one just as basic as I could. Genuine faith always produces a passion for spiritual pursuits. So, so when God's work and God's word are accomplishing what they should be accomplishing in my life, I, I will not... I will not be comfortable resting in my present spiritual state, whatever state it is, however advanced or diminished. Peter says, saving faith produces, there's, a, there's an energy in it. 
There's a, it comes with a drive. It never comes without that kind of energy. It produces effort. And if, if that wasn't enough, Peter says it produces every effort possible. Make every effort. It's not works. It's the manifestation of saving grace through faith. Paul, in typical Paul-like fashion, he says it's, it's, it's like running a race. It's like running a long race. You don't stop. I've, I've not done that kind of race. But you see people, and, and I've heard people describe it. I have a friend that runs marathons. Doesn't live here, but they talk about the, the screaming, burning lungs, aching muscles. But you can't quit. <laughs> you keep going, you keep going, making every effort. That's what Peter means when he says make, make every effort. You, you concentrate on this. You, you shed your life of distracting elements. You, you become more single in purpose. You become more single in focus. Jesus said you strive to enter at the narrow gate. Strive to enter at the narrow gate. He's not talking about works. He's talking about how grace manifests itself. Grace carries its own energy. It never comes static. It comes with a drive. Now this message, this message is increasingly, I think that's the right word, increasingly at odds with the tone of the age and the tone of today's church. I mean, churches strive to find more and more ways to make the practice of Christianity more convenient. More convenient in people's plans, more convenient in people's schedules. We paraphrase the Bible so people don't have to think too hard when they read it. It'll be real easy. We try to make sure that music fits in with what they kind of hear on the radio so it appeals to a broader spectrum of taste. Because, because... We're all like this. Churchgoers don't like to change their tastes. And increasingly, we do everything we possibly can to make sure they don't have to change their tastes. We'll accommodate their tastes. We'll find ways to, we'll structure services all over the place. Even though you could put them all in one service, why do you have to have one at 9 and 11 and 3? Well, because people have hockey games and they have stuff they're doing and they, they want to be able to work their schedule and we want to accommodate them. After all, they're busier than they used to be. We'll make sure the sermons aren't too long. Sure, Pastor Don. I'm, I'm talking about other churches. People aren't too interested in doctrine. We'll make sure we have a message that kind of sells, that appeals and attracts. Now, look, I'm not arguing for a minute that we should just make church as ugly as we possibly can. And I'm not saying we should be insensitive to needs and problems of people in 2019. But I am saying, hear me, I am saying we need to be very careful lest, lest we try so hard to make convenient what the New Testament says is 
challenging. That's a problem. That's a problem. We need to be careful because while we sacrifice almost all reasonable strength and effort to acquire material goods and climb the ladder of success, we can rather quickly just be worn out and tired and fatigued when pressed into loyalty following Jesus Christ. Why is that? This is not me hearkening back to the good old days. I have no desire to go back. They weren't that good. And I'm not knocking all the genuine improvements and progress that come into all of life with the passing of time. Stuff like this. It's great. Nothing wrong with it. But I am saying there's a silent danger if something comes really easily, if something is convenient, if it's prepackaged just to my tastes, then this make every effort stuff doesn't make much sense. So the Christian faith constantly calls me to come to terms with truths and realities that are totally outside of our culture's mindset. You can't can't get them from the world's point of view. They can only be discovered by by revelation from God's word and study and knowledge and self-denial and effort. Make every effort. Pour yourself into this. Consider why Peter says faith requires effort. The two don't seem to go together. I mean, faith is just kind of believing. He doesn't mean justification by works. But what he does mean is you can't come to the truths of Christ in such a way that you don't have to realign everything else about your life. That makes sense to you? You, you must make room for the explosive power of Christ in your mind and heart. It's, it's truth for people who fear God. So, so divine, grace always, divine grace always dislocates the things I have been living for up to that point. If it doesn't do that, it's not divine grace. It dislocates. The things I've been doing for where my deepest joy comes from. Where my deepest security comes from. Divine grace, when it comes, it dislocates those things. So, real faith makes its beginning in the soul with great impact. Great power. It it initiates. It jump starts the fear of God in my heart. It's fueled by a love for his glory. Okay, point number two. We won't finish this list of of things that Peter talks about adding to faith, but we'll start. To faith must be added virtue or moral excellence. For this very reason, 
because of all the provisions, the promises, promise of a new nature, escaping corruption. That it, you can do this, Peter's saying, because God has enabled it. For that reason, make every effort to supplement, and he starts, supplement your faith with that word right there. Virtue. Translations will vary depending on what translation you have. But the idea is pretty consistent. It's, it's one of moral, moral power. Spiritual uh, muscle movement. It's, it's, virtue means it's, it's not just talk. It's not just something that comes off my lips. Virtue is the opposite of pretense. Phoniness, emptiness. Peter says, make every effort to possess a forceful faith. A dominating faith. A vivid faith. Make sure your faith is consequential. In fact, that same word, virtue, in different passages is also translated fortitude. So, so make sure your faith isn't just a mental concept in your mind. Make sure your faith is, make sure it's courageous when it's opposed. That's a good sign. It's courageous when opposed. Make sure it isn't the kind of thing that your, your parents define for you, or your friends define for you, or your small group defines for you. Make sure it's yours. Make sure it isn't easily compromised. See that there's some bold, active quality to it. Don't settle for less than that, Peter says. He starts with it. Virtue. Make every effort. Make every effort. If it requires more time reading and studying, then do that. If it means coming to church more often than you do, then do it. If you need different friends and influences, find them. If you're getting lazy about getting up for church, set the alarm earlier. That's what he means. Make every effort. Don't let complacency creep up on you. Maybe you remember this verse. We spent a little time in this book of the Bible. Therefore, we must pay how much attention? Much closer attention to what we have heard. You can, you can hear stuff. Isn't it interesting? You can hear stuff without paying attention to it. Did you know that? You can hear stuff without paying attention to it. You can, you can hear stuff without, without its weight landing on you. When that happens, here's what happens. You don't disagree, you just drift. It's the opposite. Isn't that the opposite of making every effort? That's what Peter's talking about. Okay, point number three. Make sure your spiritual energies are wisely directed. I find it fascinating. It took me a long time to notice this. The way each of these qualities 
as he adds them to his list. Each one builds on the one that's been previous. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, okay, and with virtue, knowledge. So faith needs, faith, faith comes and, and, and it engages the will. Faith and grace, um, they come with a dynamic, with an energy. That's what I've been saying. We don't initiate, but it creates. It creates willing. It creates effort. But that effort has to be wisely directed. It's not just spinning the tires. As Paul would say, it has to be, has to be zeal according to knowledge. He uses that phrase a number of times. So, so you have to apply effort in areas that are going to produce fruit. We saw the same idea in Peter's teaching about the power of the life of God in the believer's heart. It's real. It's actual. It has potential to change everything, provide a new nature, escape the corruption that is in the world through lusts. Has power to do that, but it doesn't just happen automatically. It comes through precious promises, and you have to know the promises. You have to learn the promises. That's the knowledge part, see? Knowledge is strikingly important. I need to be careful how I word this, because I'm a Pentecostal pastor in a Pentecostal church. But I think it's a huge mistake And it's common. I see Christians all the time who spend all their time waiting and desiring to be moved spiritually. Whatever terminology you want to use. It's all all passive. Waiting Waiting for something to come. A blessing to fall. A movement to strike. A heart to be warmed. Whatever, whatever terminology you want to use. And there's nothing wrong with that. They're all gathered in the upper room waiting for the promise of God. I get it. But when that becomes lopsided, when, when your whole spiritual pursuit becomes passive, oh God, just waiting, you're, you're, then you're missing what Peter's talking about here. There's Christians who don't read. They don't study their Bibles. They don't memorize Scripture. They slog around to church whenever they think there's some kind of special meeting. They don't really want to study any kind of doctrine or theology. But if God would just pour out some kind of blessing, they would love that. Showers of blessing. And God does pour out blessing on people. But in most cases, receiving blessing from God is not just cosmic fluke. It's people who prepare their hearts. Peter's writing from experience. Peter. Constantly getting himself into trouble. And it was never because he lacked passion. It was because there were lots of times what he lacked was wisdom and knowledge. He was impulsive. He'd chop off a soldier's ear when he knew that couldn't be the way of Jesus. 
All he had to do was think it through. And Peter is going to write a great deal about this, about the danger of false teachers in this book and false teaching in this book that we're studying. So, so it takes more than blessing. It, it takes understanding. It takes knowledge. Here's something else. If no one's ever told you this before, let me tell you now. God will never, 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 never just drop knowledge into your life. You can't get it right here, kneeling. You get it by learning. Let the Holy Spirit ignite a desire to learn God's truth. Four. Faith must constantly do battle with the stubbornness and the deceitfulness of the sinful nature within. You get this looking at five and six together. We're, we're almost done now. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. With virtue, we looked at that. And with virtue, knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. That's the third one. Self-control. And I think, again, the link. The link with what has gone before is important. Knowledge is so important. Understanding. But we all have to be aware of a potential problem. I have this problem. You have this problem. Whenever we come to learn the things of God. My, my comprehension, like you, I try and read right through the Bible every year. And you read things and you learn things. I want my faith to be real, virtue. I want there to be power in it. I want to grow in knowledge. And so you study, you pray and you study and you pray and you study. But unless I'm unless I'm aware of a danger, that can still end up coming up pretty empty. Because when I learn things from God's Word, I don't learn those things with an unbiased mind. I learn those things with a fallen one. And so do you. In other words, the data, I can see the squiggles, the letters, and we, it, we link up the letters and we get words, and we put the words together and we get sentences. So I know how to read and you know how to read. So we, we know how to get the data off the markings on the page. But I still have to be aware of a potential problem. My, my knowledge, the accumulation of the knowledge, is frequently rendered useless by wrong desires. Just the knowledge by itself doesn't give me the desire to implement the knowledge and to yield to the knowledge in my life. So, I am not unbiased in the way I collect divine truth. And you aren't either. All of my natural instincts lean in the direction of excusing my sin. It's your fault. It's not my fault. In our cleverness, we usually shift blame away from ourselves. And Peter is saying that if if we aren't applying 
every effort. That's what he means. All the time. I will constantly miss. I will miss the real source of my spiritual problems. And I will miss the real solutions in God's word. It's this inward self that I need to control. It's this inward self that I need to restrain and submit and humble and put under the authority of God's word. It's that self that I need to keep in check. Knowledge will just be academic without self-control. Peter has already told us, you see it in that fourth verse. He's granted to us his, his precious and very great promises. So that through them, that's interesting, not by them, through them, it, getting, getting, getting into them. You may become partakers of a divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Here's the problem, these, these sinful desires. That's what's wrong with the world. That's what's wrong with me. That's what's wrong with you. We are creatures, all of us, of desires. Um, they're bent. They're being redeemed. But you still have some of the old you in there. The non-Christian explains all of his problems in a different way. Might be a good person. The problem will always be located in external circumstances. The problem is a lack of money. The problem is a lack of instruction. The problem is the kind of environment in which I was raised. And I'm not belittling any of those things. But the Christian knows those aren't the root problem. They affect the problem, but they aren't the root problem. The chief problem is a spiritual problem. It's, it's the problem of sin and the fall and the desires of my heart. Here's what Paul says. For the desires of the flesh, isn't this striking? They're against the Spirit. Just stop for a minute. This element of self-control that makes what we learn effective, what we hear, what we read, this element of self-control. Here, here's what it means. Did you know when you walked into this church this morning, same with me, did you calculate that when you came in and sat, you got your regular seat, right? You're sitting where you always sit. As you sit there and the service started, did you say, now, now, here's what I need to reckon with. There is something in my heart right now, Paul says, that is against the Holy Spirit. That's you. So, so that, that's what we have to reckon with. That's that self-control part. So the knowledge that you learn words in, in worship songs, in, in sermons, in studies, you'll go to classes. For that to be effective, I need to constantly sit and say, I need to make every effort to make sure that I'm hearing what I'm hearing honestly. I need to make sure that I've got self under control as we start that 10 o'clock service at Cedarview Community Church because he's going to wreck things for me. 
you've got that. He's going to ruin things for you if it's at all possible. And so make every effort. You deal with that, he says. It, it's squishing pride. It's, it's fighting arguments that come to the mind. It's yielding to, to things that are going to bring change, more change than you're comfortable with. Self-control. It is true. You can get it in that Galatians text. Only God's Spirit can help win that battle. And Peter knows that too. But he still says, make every effort about self-control. Add it. Add it all the time. It's not enough just to start. You won't last unless you make every effort. Self can't be left unchecked for a minute. You and I must never think that while we're sitting in church, all these desires are going to be taken out of us. That's not what Peter says. There's something I have to do every day in my life. Paul says he died daily. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Paul said he had constantly been living like those who have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So that's self-control. That's what he's talking about. It's a difficult virtue to make work because by definition, self-control has to be exercised against my natural reflex reactions. That's why, that's why Peter forms this immediate link between knowledge and self-control. Self-control is the first virtue Peter lists after knowledge, and and here's why. Self-control is holding back the instant reflex desires of the self long enough for the divine truth of the Word to be enlivened by the Holy Spirit. If I react too quickly, the Holy Spirit doesn't have time to plant the truth of God's Word in my mind in a way that's going to bear fruit. So self-control means, wait a minute, Don. Don't just react to this. You, you, you need this more than you probably realize. Give this, give this word place. That's what self-control does. So, that's enough for this morning. We wrap up with this question. How will we grow in these things? And Peter really will only give one answer. Yes, you and I need to pray about these things. Yes, we need to confess our sins. Rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, learn, ingest the promises of God the way Peter commanded. But... But if these things are going to be not just received, but multiplied. That's what he's talking about. He uses that word. If these things are going to be multiplied in my life after, after uh, you know, being a, a Christian for 56 years and pastoring for 40-some years, if these things are going to keep being multiplied, and they have to be, It's going to take extra effort. Make every effort. Make every effort to add to your faith. 
verse 5. So, for most of us busy people, you know where this is going. Because we're finite, if Peter's right, and if if the power of grace in my life needs to constantly be multiplied, and if that takes making every effort, here's what everybody, every thinking person in this room knows, and this is what hurts. If I'm going to put more effort into this, I'm going to have to put less effort into something else. Do you see it? We can't put more and more effort into everything. That's that, that's that taking up the cross part. Don't make it like a religious song. It, it's really very practical. If you're going to put more effort into this, it's going to take more time. It will also produce more joy. And somewhere not too far down the road, if you do this, you're going to stop and go, what in the world was I wasting my time with before? Oh, there's glory in this. And you really start to taste and see that the Lord is good. And it's more than a song. It becomes the flavor of your heart.